friends, comrades, detractors, enthusiasts, welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast, your cognitive sanctuary, where we do cognitive kung fu, exploring the interconnected issues of freedom and tyranny, personal sovereignty, politics, technology, warfare, and the surprising role that blockchain technology and Bitcoin just might play in fireproofing you against what's to come. I'm your host, retired Lieutenant Colonel Bill Stebbins, your mental masseuse, and today we're going to look at a very apropos subject, the national debt ceiling, the ceiling that we are almost add at this point. And we want to take a look at what does the debt ceiling mean? What are the repercussions if that debt ceiling isn't expanded or extended? And we'll look at this in light of the last episode and the topics that we explored at that time. Our national government, employing as it does, operating as it does, under the mental motto of Keynesian economic theory, and you recall that from the last episode, that the way to make the economy strong is through spending. And chief among these spending initiatives is war. Wartime spending is very profitable, really stimulates the economy in the eyes of Keynesian economic theorists. And so as we look at the debt that we have, We have a federal budget that gets propounded, and then we seek to determine how to finance the programs, the budget that's agreed upon. And we bear in mind that the Constitution requires no balanced budget provision. We don't have that in the Constitution, and folks have attempted to uh, amend this and to have a balanced budget amendment, but it's it's not been successful so far. And looking at this national budget and the debt ceiling that we're approaching, it seems like we run into this year after year after year, where we are told by the Secretary of the Treasury that we're approaching the debt ceiling and that we need to quickly elevate the ceiling so that we don't default on our obligations. And as we look at this historically, we find that our nation has raised the debt ceiling 78 times since 1960. That's approximately 1.3 times each year throughout Democratic as well as Republican presidents. We already raised the ceiling December of last year And then 19 January of this year, uh, the debt reached $31.4 trillion, uh, the spending cap, which had been raised in December. This debt ceiling is supposedly the legal limit on how much debt the government can incur. And so the process involved with this is, first of all, the Treasury Secretary informs everyone, the President, Congress, etc., when the debt ceiling will likely be hit. So the Treasury is analyzing this, looking at the likely time that it will hit the ceiling, 
Then the president submits a request to raise the ceiling. The third step in the process is the Senate and the House. They have hold hearings. They debate the merits of this. And then they vote on whether to raise the ceiling or not. If both chambers agree and vote to raise the ceiling, to elevate it, then it, the president signs a bill making it so. And so this is the process that's been followed repeatedly. And Secretary Yellen was uh, Secretary of the Treasury. She was interviewed just yesterday. And she said that right now, if the ceiling isn't raised again, that certain economic chaos will likely ensue. And so she's advocating for raising the ceiling. Um, some dangers that will occur if uh, Congress refuses to vote to raise the ceiling is that government would default on its obligations. So it has incurred through the budget process, many different programs that it is going to fund, that it intends to fund. Among these are Medicare, um, Social Security, etc. If the ceiling is not expanded, then the government doesn't have the funds, the finances, to finance these programs. And so Potential ramifications would be that Social Security checks would not be cut after the period that the ceiling is hit. Um, other repercussions, it would harm business and consumer confidence. Further, short-term borrowing costs for taxpayers would likely spike. And the U.S. government's credit rating could be downgraded, which is slightly humorous to me. Because you you look at how our government spends money, it just it kind of impresses me. It seems like it's a out of control teenager uh, with her parents' credit cards, just maxing all of the credit cards and then demanding that the parents get more credit, that they get higher credit limits on the already maxed out credit cards that she's out wildly spending in a, a, a drunken uh, spending spree. Uh, despite this, uh, the DBRS current rating for the United States is triple A rated as stable. The S&P, it's a double A plus also rated as stable. And Fitch also rates our credit rating as triple A stable. And so I find this just slightly amusing that they are giving these um, very high marks for what seems to be a track record of highly irresponsible fiscal behavior on the part of our federal government. The real question becomes, why can our federal government not live within its means the way you or I have to live? We can only live on debt for so long before that plan of action implodes. And yet the federal government does this repeatedly. And those of us, if you don't study the national debt, if you don't study how we finance programs in our federal budget, then you hear that we're approaching the debt ceiling and all of these very foreboding negative consequences 
if our politicians don't vote to raise the ceiling. And so we worry about our personal finances. We worry about the economy and what would happen were this to occur. But if we go study it, we find that the ceiling has been raised, again, as I said, 78 times since 1960. In other words, this is the trend. This is the protocol that we follow. This isn't an immediate emergency that they would want you to believe. And the reason I say that is for a couple of reasons. It, it is a problem, but it's not the immediate problem that immediately jumps into your mind. Because they will elevate the ceiling. They will increase the ceiling. They will vote on it. Uh, a lot of this is political posturing. Uh, McCarthy achieved his speaker's seat um, by agreeing to put this on the agenda that, that the debt ceiling would be used as political capital, as political fodder to have debates with the Democratic presidential administration. And it happens on both sides. Republicans and Democrats play the same exact game because they are both bought into Keynesian economic theory. And one of the pillars of that theory is that spending is the way out of economic recessions, depressions, etc., and that you can stimulate growth by spending. And Congress, uh, the government controls the purse that controls the printing presses, and being on the fiat currency, all that they have to do is print more money. And so it's a fairly simple way out of this. I'm simplifying things, but it is actually simple. It's not responsible because at the end of the day, they will print their way out of this, but you and I are the ones that are harmed by it. Meaning that the purchasing power of our dollars continues to plummet because as the supply increases dramatically, then the intrinsic worth, that the worth of, of your dollar plummets, it free falls. And we talked about that in the last episode. The reason why gold was an excellent store of value, why it was considered very valuable and priced very highly, is because it's very rare. It's a hard form of money. It's very difficult to mine it, very difficult to find it. Very limited uh, quantity of gold in the Earth's crust. This is not true of paper. Paper is easily printed. And so then presidential administrations come up with budgets, a compilation of all of these programs and initiatives that they wish to fund to include in this case now, and I'll bring up the war in Ukraine, and we'll talk about how much money we're siphoning um, indirectly to Ukraine. And then they go about determining how we're going to finance these programs that are in the budget. And inevitably, Again and again, this has been our history, uh, we don't have the existing resources to fund the programs. And so we hit a debt ceiling, and then we vote to elevate the debt ceiling and incur more debt on the part of the U.S. government. And this is just is a continuing cycle. And so why can our government not live within its means? The answer to that is because it doesn't intend to do so. It does not intend to live within responsible means. It controls the purse. 
It controls the monetary policy. It controls the printing presses. Using fiat currency, it will print more money as needed. And understand, it intends to operate this way indefinitely. The central planners feel that they can, they can avoid any type of imminent economic collapse. And a great deal of arrogance is involved in this. But they intend to operate this way indefinitely. And the only real impact that's felt is by you and me, middle class Americans. It's felt by those who are impoverished because the spending power of the dollar continues to erode. The dollar plummets in value. Understand that the politically connected, the central planning financiers, all of them become, remain fabulously wealthy. They're not impacted by this at all. They're not impacted by the purchasing power of the dollar decreasing. They're wildly rich. And, this, and they continue to consolidate power this way. And so <clears throat> this is the situation that we're in. And so now is a good time for a trivia question. When was the only time in our nation's history that our nation was debt-free? When they had a balanced budget and were debt-free, no national debt. And the answer is, from 1835 to 1837, two years, the only time in U.S. history. And this is during the period of President Andrew Jackson's presidency. Interestingly, he fought successfully against Nicholas Biddle's second National Bank of the United States. Andrew Jackson fought against and won the establishment of a second bank of the United States. He absolutely saw through it. He did not believe that European uh, banking families, primarily the Rothschilds, should have the ability to control the American economy directly through a central bank. And this is the only time that we had a president that was actually able to pay off the national debt and keep us debt-free. 1835 to 1837. And so let's return very briefly to the concept of Bitcoin. Again, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is code that explains a set of rules for a public, fully transparent ledger. A ledger that records the creation of Bitcoin, how much Bitcoin there is in, in, in supply, and that is generated through a process called mining. And the second thing that that public, transparent ledger shows is what happens to the Bitcoin once it's mined. Who owns it? Who gives it to who? Etc. And that's all done anonymously. And so when you think about it this way, what Bitcoin does is it doesn't require a trusted third party. Now, in our current monetary system, we have to have a, what we call it, a trusted third party to manage these ledgers. And who do you think the trusted third parties are? These are the banks. These are the banks. 
And now you understand why the banking plutocrats or the banking oligarchs, the big bankers, absolutely do not like Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin doesn't require and cannot make use of banks. The ledger is completely open and transparent to anyone that can gain access to the internet. Now don't hear me wrong. I'm not advocating for doing away with all banks. Uh, there is a purpose and a place for banks. I also see a purpose and a place for fiat currency to execute daily transactions in our, in, in our lives. What I am against, where I do see major problems, is with the centralization of banks and banks controlling uh, the wealth of the nation. Specifically, also, this concept of the Federal Reserve, which is a privately owned, for-profit, fractional reserve central bank, independent of congressional control and oversight. That I have no use for. And I find it quite logical that the only time our nation has been debt-free was during the period of the presidency of Andrew Jackson, who was also against a big central national bank. Makes sense to me. And so this is the system that we live under. And now let's pull Ukraine into this. As I mentioned in the last episode, per the Keynesian economic theory, one of the great drivers of stimulating the economy is spending. And a massive way to kickstart spending is to spend it on the military-industrial complex, on war, if wars can be had. And in war, those who don't lose are the folks that feed the war machine, who lobby for the military-industrial complex and get the contracts, etc. They don't go to the front lines. They don't pay in blood. They will profit from it greatly. And so brings us to Ukraine. 24 February 2022, the Russian invasion about 14 months ago. And right now there's no end in sight. No end in sight in that conflict. Russia hasn't won. Ukraine hasn't folded. They're in a bit of a stalemate. And I reflect on when I used to teach tactics and operational art at the Command and General Staff College to mid-grade officers, both United States officers of all services as well as foreign officers. And in my study of, of military history, I often notice that warfare is about attrition. It's not about maneuver. Maneuver or these incredibly prescient, genius moves on a, on a battlefield. Th these things gain you limited advantage. There are times when there's excellent things that occur at the operational level that give you some advantage, but actual wars, wars are won or determined at the end of the day through attrition. Who has enough industrial staying power, political, industrial, financial staying power to outlast the opponent? And so right now we have a war of attrition between Russia and Ukraine, and no incredible maneuver 
is uh, deciding that conflict there. And as our nation approaches its debt ceiling, then I thought it'd be interesting just to see, okay, so what's part of the debt? What are we trying to finance? And I mentioned before that our military budget is larger every year for the last several years. It's larger than the next nine countries' military budgets combined. Our military industrial complex is enormous. And so how much have we spent on Ukraine? Since February of last year, we've spent about 115 to 130 billion dollars on Ukraine. Matter of fact, since 2015, no other European or Eurasian nation has received more aid, more financial aid from the United States than Ukraine. Going back to 2015, they received 292 million. 2016, 550 million. 2017, 537 million. 2018, 580 million. 2019, 596 million. 2020, 666 million. 2022, $46.6 billion. In May of 2022, $40 billion more dollars were pledged. And then yesterday, $1.2 billion more were promised. So since February of 2022, about 115 to 130 billion or so, or roughly about 2% of our entire federal budget has been promised to Ukraine. You know, and if you work a 40-hour work week, let's say, then just put it in these kind of terms. The first hour of your work week, you're working for Ukraine, essentially, if you want to put it in those terms. Just, just know when you go to work this week, uh, one hour of your work, that's for Ukraine. But understand that 95% of that discretionary spending goes not directly to Ukraine. It goes to the Department of Defense. It goes to the State Department, which manages USAID, or the U.S. Agency for International Development. So there's intermediate custodians of these colossal sums of money. Further, most of this hasn't even been spent yet, according to reports. Matter of fact, departments that receive funds earmarked for Ukraine or for the Ukraine conflict, they, these departments have discretion over the length of disbursement. And many of them expect these disbursements to go through Roll of the Drums, 2032, the year 2032. And you know between now and 2032, you know next year, you know next month, you know this upcoming October and November, billions and billions and billions more will continue to be pledged for the purpose of Ukraine. Now... I was born at night, but not last dog on night. And you know, and where's this money going? How much of this money is being siphoned off and into the pockets of the military contractors? 
of military lobbyists, of folks within the inner circle who are getting fabulously wealthy from the business of war. Again, you want to ask yourself, our national security, how is it so closely and intensely linked to Ukraine's national sovereignty? I used to train the U.S. Border Patrol on the southern border when I worked for the Command and General Staff College. I saw the real conditions down on the southern border, and it's only gotten worse since then. And we have this incredible Sino Mexican cartel fentanyl invasion occurring right now. We're being invaded by incredible amounts of highly lethal fentanyl, which I consider a chemical weapon of mass destruction. It's killing more Americans each year than the combined casualties of Iraq and Afghanistan combined. We had over 70,000 on the low side closer to about 85,000 deaths this last year from fentanyl overdose. Chinese companies are bringing fentanyl precursors into Mexico and facilitating the cartels to bring this fentanyl north. And so don't think for a minute that your, your federal government is really concerned about your, your safety and welfare. You know, they'll make this a rationale for why we have to uh, dig our boots into the ground when it comes to Ukraine and not permit Russia to invade Ukraine's borders. While at the same time, we turn a blind eye to the southern border where this weapon of mass destruction, this chemical weapon of mass destruction, is being allowed with very, very, very little pushback being allowed to just come through massive invasion. And many of you listening to me may know loved ones or friends, relatives, acquaintances who've overdosed from fentanyl. Now, so your federal government's not concerned about your welfare. There aren't profits to be made with the issue on the southern border. Anything close approximating or even getting close to the profit margin in investing in this war that Ukraine is fighting with Russia. Just as a side note, and I, I don't know that this means anything or there's a, or that there's anything of value that can be pulled from this, but it was just interesting to me as I researched this further that in the Bitcoin space, Prior to the invasion, Ukraine had been very pro-Bitcoin. They had been actually seeking and looking at the option of making it legal tender in Ukraine. Legal tender meaning that citizens could pay their taxes with Bitcoin in Ukraine. They were seriously considering this. Further, in the Bitcoin mining space, Bitcoin mining, for it to be profitable, it needs prodigious amounts of cheap electricity. Well, this is something that Ukraine had. They had 15 nuclear power plants, and it provided cheap electricity. And so there are quite a few Bitcoin miners located in Ukraine. 
I don't know the status of this now. I'm quite sure that they're probably not mining now, but it was an interesting observation. And so we'll keep watching this conversation, this political theater, debates on the debt ceiling, and sure enough, my prognostication is that it will be elevated. We will not have to witness the repercussions of the current system imploding because we default on our obligations. So they'll raise the ceiling. This doesn't make the overall situation any better because this current situation, this, this fiat monetary system, um, is doomed for a certain reckoning. And so in this podcast, uh, my endeavor, my, my mission is to help you figure out how to navigate what may likely be coming. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you learned something, were entertained a little bit, and that your frame of awareness has been expanded a little. And until next time, I would ask you to go ahead and subscribe to this podcast and maybe share it with others who might benefit from it. Uh, Thank you for spending a little time with me today.